Chapter Thirteen of the Black Moth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. The Black Moth by Georgette Hare. Chapter Thirteen. My Lord Makes His Bow. After Jim's arrival, my lord recovered quickly each day making great progress, much to the doctor's satisfaction, who never tired of telling Mr. Bewley and Miss Betty that it was entirely owing to his treatment that the patient had recovered at all. As his idea of treatment mainly consisted of copiously bleeding John, which process Miss Betty very soon put an end to, he and she had many arguments on the subject, in which he was completely routed. She held that Mr. Carr was well on the strength of her own nursing, and his own constitution, and very probably she was right. In any case, hardly a fortnight after O'Hara's first visit, my lord was standing before his mirror, surveying himself, with his head speculatively on one side and a worried look in his eyes. Salter watched him anxiously, knowing this to be a critical moment. His master was somewhat of an enigma to him. The important things in life never appeared to affect him, but over a question of two cravats, as opposed to each other, or some equally trivial matter, he would become quite harassed. After contemplating his appearance for several moments, Carstairs frowned and looked over his shoulder. "'I have changed my mind, Jim. I will wear blue, after all.' Salter sighed despairingly. "'Ye look very well in what ye have on, sir,' he grunted. Jack sat down obstinately. "'I have conceived a dislike, nigh, a veritable hatred for puce.' I will wear blue. Now, sir, do have done changing your clothes. You'll be tired out before ever you get downstairs, and you know what the doctor said. My lord consigned the doctor in his words of wisdom to a place of great heat. Ay, sir, but— The doctor. The doctor is a worthy individual, Jim, but he knows even less of the art of dressing than you do. He does not understand the sole agony of a man who makes his first appearance in puce. The blue coat laced with gold. Sir, I order it. I insist. The blue coat or not. Very well, sir. Resignedly, Jim walked to the cupboard. When at length his lordship was dressed to his entire satisfaction, it was midway through the hot June afternoon, and Miss Betty was tapping at the door, wishing to know whether Mr. Carr was coming down, or whether he was not. Carstairs shifted his sling, and taking up his hat, moved just a little shakily to the door. Salter opened it and cast a triumphant glance at Miss Betty, as though he were showing off all my lord's graces. He proffered an arm. "'Shall I help you, sir?' Miss Betty curtsied low. "'La, Mr. Carr!' John bowed profoundly. "'Give you good den, madam,' he said. "'I am just about to descend. Thank you, Jim.' He leaned heavily on the man's arm. Miss Betty walked around him admiringly. Lord, tis mighty elegant, I vow, but I protest I am shy. Egad, Miss Betty, and why? You are not so young as I imagined, she replied candidly. Bear in mind, madame, that I never sought to deceive you. I am an aged man. Thirty, she scoffed and went on. Come, child, and mind the first step. At the bottom of the staircase stood Mr. Bewley, a man of medium height, thin-lipped and grey-eyed, he came forward with one hand outstretched. 
"'I am delighted to see you so much better, sir. "'I trust your shoulder no longer pains you.' "'My lord pushed Jim gently to one side "'and placed his hand in Mr. Bulay's. "'I thank you, sir. It is almost well. "'But for Miss Betty, who I fear, "'has the makings of a true tyrant, "'I should not wear this obnoxious sling.' "'Mr. Bulay smiled a little. "'Ah, oh, yes. She keeps us all in order, does Betty. "'Pray!' "'Will you not walk a little in the garden? "'There are chairs on the lawn, and here is my daughter.' He waved to the door, and Carstairs, turning, beheld Diana. She stood framed by the dark wood, gowned in amber silk, with old lace falling from her elbows and over the bosom of her dress. Her hair was dark as night, with little tendrils curling over her broad white brow. One rolling curl fell over her shoulder. The rest were gathered up under a small lace cap, which was secured by means of a riband passed beneath her chin. Jack gazed and gazed again, and in her turn Diana studied him with wide brown eyes of almost childlike innocence. Then her lids fluttered and curling lashes veiled the glorious depths as the slow blush mounted to her cheeks. My lord recovered his manners and made his most approved leg as her father presented him. "'My love, this is Mr. Carr.' Diana sank into a curtsy. "'And, Mr. Carr, this is my daughter, Diana.' "'I am delighted to make Miss Bulay's acquaintance,' said John, and raised her hand to his lips. The delicate, tapering fingers trembled a little in his hold, and tremulous lips parted in the shyest and most adorable smile that he had ever seen. "'Indeed, sir, we are already acquainted. I am not like to forget my rescuer.' I am happy to think that I was able to be of some service to you, mademoiselle. Believe me, it was an honour to fight in your cause. His eyes were on the fascinating dimple that played about her mouth. "'Tis very kind of you to say so, sir. I fear we greatly incommoded you, and—she made a gesture towards his sling. That, mademoiselle, is less than nothing. All the obligation is on my side. Miss Betty bustled forward. "'Now that will do.' I never heard such a foolish set of compliments. You are looking tired, Mr. Carr. Come into the garden and rest. Salter stepped forward, but Diana stayed him with uplifted finger. If Mr. Carr will accept my arm, she hazarded. Jack flushed. Indeed, no, Miss Bulay, I can— Oh, tut-tut, cried Miss Betty. Have done dilly-dallying. Take him out, Di. Mr. Bulay had already disappeared. His world lay in his library, and he was never far from it for any length of time. Now he had seized the moment when his sister was not looking to withdraw quietly, and when she turned around she was only in time to see the library door close softly. "'Your papa has gone again,' she remarked to her niece. "'What a trying man he is, to be sure.' She followed the pair out onto the lawn, and helped to make Carstairs seat himself in a long chair under a great elm. A cushion was placed under his wounded shoulder, and another at his back. "'And are you sure that you are quite comfortable?' inquired Miss Betty anxiously, bending over him. Jack laughed up at her. <laughs> "'Quite sure, thank you, madame. But where will you sit?' "'I shall sit in this chair, and I will sit on a cushion. Throwing one down. At my feet. Just so.' "'I see that you are ruled with a rod of iron, mademoiselle,' he said, and watched the dimple tremble into being. "'Indeed, yes, sir. Tis very sad.' 
Miss Betty chuckled and unrolled a packet of silks, which she threw into her niece's lap. "'Will you have the goodness to sort those for me, love?' she asked, taking out her embroidery. "'Pray, allow me to assist,' pleaded John. Diana rose and planted her cushion down beside his chair. She then knelt down upon it and emptied the multicolored strands onto his knee. "'Very well. You must be very careful to separate the different pinks, though. See, we will have the rose here, the salmon here, the deeper rose here, the pale pink over there, and the reds. There is no more room. We will put the reds in this paper.' "'Certainly,' agreed Carstairs. "'Are we to leave the other colours until the pinks are sorted?' She nodded and bent her head over the silks. "'Is Sir Miles coming this afternoon, Mr. Carr?' "'Why, yes, Miss Betty. Now you mention it. I remember that he is. Miss Bulay, I defy you to put that one on the rose-pile. Tis a shade too deep.' "'I am sure tis not. Where is one to compare with it?' Carstairs produced a long thread and held it next to hers. The two heads were bent close over it. Diana sighed. "'You are right. I can just see the difference, but tis very slight.' Miss Betty peeped over their shoulders. "'Gracious! What an eye you must have! I can detect no difference.' Her eye ran along the row of silks laid out on my lord's white satin leg. "'Mr. Carr,' said Diana suddenly, "'I want to ask you something, something that has been puzzling me.' "'Faith, what is it, Miss Bulay? "'Just this. Why did you call Mr. Everard M. Le Duc?' There was a tiny pause. My lord looked down into the gold-flecked eyes and frowned a little. "'Did I call him that?' "'Yes. I remember it distinctly. Was it just a manner of speaking?' "'Just a manner of speaking. You may call it that, mademoiselle. Do you not think that he rather looks ducal?' "'I tried not to think of him at all.' I hate him. Almost I begin to pity Mr. Everard, quoth Jack. The dimple peeped out. Then tis most ungallant of you, sir, she reproved. Do you know Mr. Everard? I have certainly seen him before, madame. Diana sat back on her heels and eyed him wonderingly. I believe you do not wish to answer me, she said slowly. Tell me, is Everard that man's real name? My lord twisted the ring on his finger uneasily. He did not feel himself at liberty to expose Belmanoir, and if he should reveal his true identity it was quite possible that Mr. Bullet might seek him out, in which case he himself might be recognized. He looked up. "'Pardon me, mademoiselle, but whence this cross-examination?" Diana nodded placidly. "'I thought you would refuse. But I have discovered something that would confound you, sir.' She rose to her feet. I will go and get it. She walked gracefully away towards the house, and my lord watched her go. Now I am going to ask a question, broke in Miss Betty's voice. He threw out an imploring hand. Madame, I beg you will consider my feeble condition. Am I fit to bear the strain, think you? I do. Is it usual for gentlemen to ride masked as you were? At that he laughed. No, madame. But for the gentlemen of the high Toby, it is de regle. She paused with her needle held in midair. Now what mean you by that? Just that I am a common highwayman, Miss Betty. She stared at him for a moment and then resumed her work. You look it. 
John cast a startled glance down his slim person. "'Is that so, madame? And I rather flattered myself I did not.' "'I was only laughing at you. You do not expect me to believe that fabrication, surely?' "'I fear I do,' he sighed. "'Tis very true, alack.' "'Oh, indeed. Also a friend of Sir Miles O'Hara, J.P., and of Mr. Everard.' "'At least the last named is not an acquaintance to be proud of,' he retorted. "'Perhaps not. My die says he is some great gentleman. I perceive that your die is by nature suspicious. Why does she think that?' "'You will see. Die, love, here is Mr. Carr trying to make me believe that he is a highwayman.' Diana came up to them, smiling. "'I fear he teases you, aunt. Do you remember this, sir?' Into Jack's hands she put his grace of Andover's sword. Carstairs took it, surprised, and glanced casually at the hilt. Then he started up. "'Why, tis his sword! And I thought twas left on the roadside. Can it be? Did you bring it, mademoiselle?' She dropped him a curtsy and laughed. "'You are surprised, sir. You demanded the sword, so I naturally supposed that you required it. Therefore I brought it home.' "'Twas monstrous thoughtful of you, then. I dared not hope that it had not been forgotten. I am very grateful. Then pray, show your gratitude by sitting down again, advised the elder Miss Bullet. Remember that this is your first day up, and have a care. John subsided obediently, turning the sword over in his hands. Diana pointed to the wrought gold hilt with an accusing finger. "'And I mistake not, sir.' "'That is a coronet.' My lord's eyes followed the pink-tipped finger, and rested wrathfully upon the arms of Andover. It was like Tracy to flaunt them on his sword-hilt, he reflected. "'It certainly has that appearance,' he admitted cautiously. "'Also, those are not paste, but real diamonds, and that is a ruby.' "'I do not dispute it, madame,' he answered meekly. "'And I believe that that big stone is an emerald?' "'I am very much afraid that it is.' "'An expensive toy,' she said, and looked sharply at him. "'Ornate, I agree, but as true a piece of steel as ever I saw,' replied my lord blandly, balancing the rapier on one finger. "'A very expensive toy,' she repeated sternly. John sighed. "'True, madame, true.' Then with a brightened air— Perhaps Mr. Everard has expensive tastes? It is very possible, and I think that Mr. Everard must have been more than a simple country gentleman to indulge those tastes. Carstairs bit his lip to hide a smile at the thought of Tracy in the light of a simple country gentleman, and shook his head sadly. Do you infer that he came by this sword dishonestly, madame? The dimple quivered and was gone. Sir, I believe that you are playing with me, she said with great dignity. "'Madame, I am abashed. I am very glad to hear it, then. I infer that Mr. Everard was something more than he pretended to be.' "'In truth, a sorry rogue to deceive a lady.' "'And I want to know if I am right. Is he, perhaps, some grand gentleman?' "'I can assure you, madame, that there is very little of the gentleman about Mr. Everard.' Miss Betty began to laugh. 
have done my dear tis of no avail and tis impolite to press mr carr too hard diana pouted he is monstrous provoking i think she said and eyed him reproachfully i am desolated mourned jack but his eyes danced and now you are laughing but then mademoiselle so are you she shook her head resolutely repressing the dimple then i am inconsolable the brown eyes sparkled, and her lips parted in spite of her efforts to keep them in a stern line. "'Oh, but you are ridiculous!' she cried, and sprang to her feet. "'And here is Sir Miles.' O'Hara came across the lawn towards them, bowed to the ladies, and glanced inquiringly from one to the other. "'Is it a joke you have?' he asked. Diana answered him, "'Indeed, no, sir. Tis Mr. Carr who is provoking.' "'Provoking, is it?' And what has he been doing i'll tell you the whole truth miles interposed the maligned one tis mistress diana who is so inquisitive oh diana blushed furiously i protest you are unkind sir sure tis no gentleman he is at all twas on the subject of gentlemen that we quarrelled supplied her aunt disagreed amended his lordship disagreed nodded diana I asked him whether Mr. Everard was not some grand gentleman, and he evaded the point. "'I vow tis slander,' cried Jack. "'I merely said that Everard was no gentleman at all.' "'There! And was that not evading the point, Sir Miles?' "'Was it? Sure, I'm inclined to agree with him.' "'I declare you are both in league against me,' she cried, with greater truth than she knew. "'I mean, was he perhaps a titled gentleman?' "'But how should Jack know that?' "'Because I'm sure he knows him, or at least of him.' "'Listen, Mistress Di,' broke in my lord, shooting a warning glance at O'Hara. "'I will tell you all about Mr. Everard, and I hope you will be satisfied with my tale.' He paused and seemed to cudgel his brain. First, he is, of course, titled. Let me see. Yes, he is a duke. Oh, he is certainly a duke.' and I am not sure but what he is royal. "'Now you are ridiculous,' cried Miss Betty. "'You are very teasing,' said Diana, and tried to frown. First you pretend to know nothing about Mr. Everard, and then you tell me foolish stories about him. A duke, indeed! I believe you really do know nothing about him.' As Carstairs had hoped, she refused to believe the truth. "'He is playing with you, child,' said O'Hara, who had listened to Jack's tale with a face of wonder. "'I warrant he knows no Everard, eh, Jack?' "'No, I cannot say that I do,' laughed his lordship. "'But—but you said—' "'Never mind what he said, Miss Di. "'Tis a scurvy fellow he is.' She regarded him gravely. "'Indeed, I almost think so.' But the dimple peeped out for all that. The next instant it was gone, and Diana turned a face of gloom to her aunt, pouting her red lips adorably. So thought my lord. "'Mr. Bettison,' she said in accents of despair. At these mystic words Jack saw Miss Betty frown and heard her impatient remark. "'Drat the man!' He looked towards the house and perceived a short, rather stout young man to be walking with a peculiar strutting gait towards them. The boy was good-looking, Carstairs acknowledged to himself, but his eyes were set too close, and he did not like his style. No, certainly he did not like his style— nor the proprietary way in which he kissed Diana's hand. 
"'How agreeable it is to see you again, Mr. Bettison,' said Miss Betty, with much affability. "'I declare, tis an age since we set eyes on you.' "'Oh, no, Aunt,' contradicted Diana sweetly. "'Why, it was only a very short while ago that Mr. Bettison was here. Surely!' She withdrew the hand that the young man seemed inclined to hold fast to, and turned to John. "'I think you do not know Mr. Bettison, Mr. Carr,' she said. "'Mr. Bettison, allow me to present you to Mr. Carr. Sir Miles, I think you know.' The squire bowed with a great deal of stiff hostility. Carstairs returned the bow. "'You will excuse my not rising, I beg,' he smiled. "'As you perceive, I have had an accident.' Light dawned on Bettison. This was the man who had rescued Diana. Confound his impudence! "'Ah, yes, sir. Your arm, was it not? My faith, I should be proud of such a wound.' It seemed to Carstairs that he smiled at Diana in a damned familiar fashion. Devil take his impudence! "'It was indeed a great honour, sir. Mistress Di, I have finished sorting your green silks.' Diana sank down on the cushing again, and shook some more strands out on to his knee. "'How quick you have been! Now we will do the blue ones.' Bettison glared. This fellow seemed prodigious intimate with Diana, devil take him. He sat down beside Miss Betty and addressed my lord patronizingly. "'Let me see, er, uh, Mr. Carr. I met you in town, I wonder. At Tom's, perhaps.' "'This country bumpkin would belong to Tom's,' reflected John savagely for no reason at all. Aloud he said, "'I think it extremely unlikely, sir. I have been abroad some years.' "'Oh, indeed, sir. The Grand Tour, I suppose?' Mr. Bettison's tone was not the tone of one who supposes any such thing. Jean smiled. "'Not this time,' he said. "'That was seven years ago.' Mr. Bettison had heard rumours of this fellow who, it was murmured, was not but a common highwayman. "'Really? After Cambridge, perhaps?' "'Oxford,' corrected Carstairs gently. "'Curse his audacity!' thought Mr. Bettison. Seven years ago. Let me think. George must have been on the tour, then. Selwyn, I mean. Miss Bullet. Jack, who had made the tour with several other young bucks fresh down from college, accompanied as far as Paris by the famous wit himself, held his peace. Mr. Bettison then launched forth into anecdotes of his own tour, and seeing that his friend was entirely engrossed with Miss Diana and her silks, O'Hara felt it incumbent on him to draw the enemy's fire, and taking his own departure to bear the squire off with him, for which he received a grateful smile from my lord, and a kiss blown from the tips of her fingers from Mistress Di, with whom he was on the best of terms. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tara Mendoza, Phoenix, Arizona, August 2011